Welcome to Life Science Marketing Radio, the podcast where marketing leaders inside and outside the sciences share their creative ideas and practical approaches to increasing your marketing ROI. Here's your host, Chris Connor. Hello and welcome back. And if this is your first time listening, I thank you very much for joining. I hope your summer has been enjoyable so far. Today I have uh, a mashup of some of my favorite interviews over the last six months. And I chose these because they together they tell a story about doing marketing in the 21st century. So let's jump right into it, shall we? Harisi Samartsadu, the Vice President of Global Marketing at Thermo Fisher in the Biosciences Division, will get us started. She's looking ahead to the future and how our customers are evolving. And based on that, she has a two-part strategy to make sure her marketing teams are ready for how our customers want to interact with us. This is a big part of my focus is to... Um, to bring to bring the marketing marketing competency in uh, in what typically is in a in a traditional uh, life science supplier type of company um, to the new era and what I mean by that to um, to the era of um, the digital um, three twenty four seven interconnected type of uh, customer that we have to serve. Um, to, to leverage the digital channels, to, to leverage uh, content and uh, data, a lot of data. I mean, uh, data in terms of um, the, the data that our customers generate, but obviously the data about our customers. So I'm a firm believer that our customer base is changing um, faster than we do as marketeers in life science. And what I mean by that is um, we have a new generation of customers entering the marketplace by the thousands. Um, if we want to call them millennials, that's fine. But it's, it's, it's a younger generation of customers that they have a different way of, um, in essence, finding information about the product, finding the product, making a decision of, of which product they will pick, and, uh, and 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 how uh, and making a decision of how we will purchase and actually how we will purchase the product, the the fundamentals around this customer need the customer journey, the customer need from that perspective, um, has changed tremendously. And I think in life science, marketing is the marketing function itself. It's pretty much as I said earlier, evolving in a slower pace. So I found it my responsibility to get my marketing team um, uh, sing- modernized, if you wish, or evolve in a, in a similar pace as our customers need. And uh, with that said, I, uh, I'm, I'm working on this twofold. One is I'm trying to cross-pollinate what used to be the traditional marketeers and product management in life sciences with uh, marketing experiences from and marketing marketing um, best practices from the consumer industry, and I do that by hiring. I'm t- we're trying to hire people uh, with uh, experience from the consumer industry. That's one. Number two, obviously, I'm I'm leveraging whatever uh, tool I can from tradition from training uh, all the way to sending my customer my my marketing. Um, uh, my, my marketing uh, people into uh, conferences and um, training courses, etc., 
again to give them exposure into into this new customer base that I'm talking about and into new tools that we need to employ from the consumer marketing and beyond uh, from the consumer industry and beyond to address our customers in today's in today's market. One of the things that you'll hear marketers talking a lot about these days is storytelling, which is actually a very old way of delivering a message and actually so effective that you rarely notice when it's happening. So I talked to Joanna Rudnick. She's the creative director at the Linus Group, and she explained how she gets companies to think about the value of storytelling for their brands. So I'm interested in the process of when you're working with a brand, how how you find out either they have a story or you're looking for the things that will make a great story. And I'm thinking in the context, I don't know if you follow Anne Handley at all, but she's always talking about telling a bigger story Mm -hmm. than what might first come to you. And that's exactly the same approach I take. I mean, one thing, I think brands have personalities and there are people behind every brand and there is a mission and a vision behind that brand and what that brand wants to be. So trying to tap into that, but I think you... Hit it for me. It's the bigger story. It is what. How do you manifest that brand into a story? And what do you want people to feel? You know, we all feel something when we see Apple. We all feel something when we see a brand that's very consistent. Like GE has done a really fantastic job of creating a brand story using storytelling, but a very particular type of documentary verite storytelling to encapsulate that brand. And to me, when a brand is so confident to stand back and say, you can tell our story without actually talking about what we do. So it's not about the products that we sell. Yeah. So the, the key word you mentioned there was confidence. So how do you get a company that's not GE to be confident <laughs> about what they stand for? That's a really, really good question. And I think that um, there's trailblazers from other fields that are going there. And I think, to me, life science is catching up. Um, I think you can show them that it works. You know, I think you look at what, how is a brand successful at having that persona out there? How do other people try it on? Right. So, I, you know, I, I think confidence is a very, it, it's a very, it's a tough, it, it, you know, I mean, it's oftentimes I say to people, what moves you? Let's look at these two things. We can present you this way, and this is completely in the details. This is right down to product. Or we can step back and really be a leader and, and, and tell a thought leadership story and stand for something. And how does that make you feel? How is that going to make your customers feel eventually to associate you in a different way? How can you really be a partner and not just in sales, but a partner to this end client? So I, I think a lot about that. It's a relationship at the end of the day. Moving from the brand story to how we interact with customers on a personal level, Olga Torres of Averica Discovery shared how she used her experience as a salesperson to guide the customer experience on their website. So, Olga, tell, tell me a little bit about how you've been able to translate what worked for you as a salesperson because you mentioned you know, being in a trades booth and having initiating a conversation with someone but how have you been able to translate what worked for you as a salesperson in an in-person conversation to an online conversation that that's something that was is one of those things you kind of have to step away from the project you can get 
really close when you're trying to, you know, like think about all these things. But when I thought about like the trade show or a booth or a table or even a, a conversation on the phone with someone and I, you know, I, I don't think cold calling is as effective as it used to be and certainly was relied on. But I grew up in the time in sales I, where it was. So thinking about a lot of different situations, what were the questions they asked me? You know, not what is the salesy positioning statement I want to tell them, but I really had to think about their questions and how I would answer their questions and that I could, and then restraining myself from saying, you know, we help chemists do, you know, I, I think as scientists, we have an aversion to hearing something that's really salesy. It, It reduces the credibility for us. So the goal became, how do I create that part of the conversation that's natural of of just getting to know someone in a digital sense because the conversation with you know our service area is really technical and that conversation needs to happen about their project but the point we when we get to a project the conversation starts to pivot in a lot of different directions and I had to kind of stay before the pivot as a marketing in the digital marketing so, and I would say maybe the pivot point would be like when they say they have a need. And if marketing's focus is then to create credibility and comfort so that they will tell us that need, you know, then it comes to those things that you were saying, what should be on that page? And that's kind of this balance of not too vague so that it's not obvious what we mean. It's, it needs to be clear. This is what we can do. And not too specific because you'll alienate one group and, while you focus on another. Yeah. And it, the other thing um, that I like that you said very early on in, in the last answer was about thinking about the questions. So I, I think this is the essence of online marketing is to really understand the questions that the people who could be using your services have. And it's really, it is rich in um, the possibilities for creating things that will engage them. And simply writing down all the questions that they might ask and figuring out the answers and how, in what different formats you might deliver each of those answers and how they can be bundled together is, is really how you, you tell your story um, up yeah. to the, up to that pivot point. I, I completely agree. And finding the right outlet for that, you know, and, and talking about when something might be a good blog article or a publication or a poster or a video. And so recently we started doing a video series where we just took those basic questions we got asked either on the time, all the time, either online or in person, and like those, you know, really, really basic ones. And, you know, we're just turning out like 45 second videos that'll answer them so that those answers are there. Uh, And 
making sure that my answer works for them because they're they're the target and making sure that their answer works for more of an emotional reason like so why is it important not just because the FDA says you have to do it you know which it is important for that too but because you know this is what it gives you it gives you more time or it gives you um higher quality or more answers Olga along with Harisi Smart to do and Alan Gerstein, who you'll hear from a little bit later in this episode, are all speaking at this year's ACPLS annual meeting in October. The good news is you can still register at a 40% discount through June 30th. So not a lot of time left to save a lot of money on this fantastic event. I want you also to know that um, if you're unsure about your schedule, you can register for the meeting. If you need to cancel, you can get your money back minus $100 for a processing fee. Um, but it's really worth signing up early. The, this year's meeting is going to be fantastic. We have a lot of people signing up so far. I really encourage you to check this out. You should go to acp-ls.org slash annual dash meeting to sign up. Now let's get back to the podcast. Taking that customer experience on the web a step further, Jonathan Price explained the value of structured content, which is really thinking of content as data and and delivering it through a database for answering customer questions. And he used an example from the B2C world that you're probably familiar with, but this is easily applied to content that answers questions in the life sciences. I wanted to see what uh, what exactly is life sciences uh, and what kind of challenges do they face in marketing? So I took took a look, and one of the things that really struck me was we'd been talking about the need for starting with what customers want to know, the, the kind of questions they have, their needs, at different points in the life cycle of the sale. And obviously, it's great to start out by having questions and answers. So one of the things that I, I look for is a good FAQ. And I think a lot of customers think, okay, it's more like a conversation. So I'm more willing to go to an FAQ. The problem that I ran into when I've, I've looked at some of the life sciences sites is that there are an awful lot of questions and an awful lot of answers. And so it's hard to find the particular question that I have um, in the midst of all of these um, many, many, many good answers. Let, let me give you an example. On one site, there's a search. And the whole idea is really good because clearly scientists like search. They prefer search to browse. They feel like they're going to be able to pinpoint what they want. Um, and so you need some form of advanced search. And what this group was doing was saying, okay, first tell me what kind of resource you want, like an FAQ, a protocol, uh, selection tools, troubleshooting guide, anything. So you pick one. I picked FAQ. 
And now, okay, now you can also refine your search by putting in a product name or number, an application uh, such as cellular analysis or cloning, DNA amplification. You put the, you select that, or you have a category uh, such as cellular analysis or glycobiology. Okay, so you now you hit submit, and for say application cellular analysis, 101 results, cloning, 1,160 results, DNA amplification, 465 results, and there they all are. This big, 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 big list, and if you're really lucky and patient, you can find maybe your question. Maybe you won't. Um, so the problem is that they they don't let you dig any deeper, and so you're stuck at a, at a level where you're not going to likely find your question or get the answer you want. Now. That is a real problem in addressing what customers want. It means that they're not going to, they come to your site, they, they do a preliminary search, and they get too many answers. The challenge is you've got too much information. How are you going to make it easier to find? And one of the, an analogy is uh, buying shoes online. Uh, have you ever been to Zappos? Yes. Okay, so they have at least 10 different menu systems. They all take you down to that one perfect shoe that's exactly the one you want. But there are many different menus, which means that they reflect the different ways that people think about buying a shoe. Uh, is, and is it, are you going to search first by size or by gender, it's for men, for women, for kids. Are you going to uh, do by brand? So they all offer you like an alphabet of brands, or you know, a uh, you choose men, and then you have clothing and shoes, and within shoes, then there are even more categories. But once you get down to the subcategories, they do something that's, that's very nice. They tell you how many hits you're going to get at a subcategory. Say yeah, down at the uh, that you've, you've gone to shoes and now it says running and it tells you there are 120 different running shoes you can buy at Zappos. So you know in advance, how bad is it? How many hits am I <laughs> likely going to get? And that's called faceted analysis. It, it means you're not forcing someone to actually go in and look at all of them and count them yourself. It anticipates, okay, there are all these, these subcategories, and here are how many records we found. So this is database thinking. It's, it says, okay, there are 120. Now when you go down, you say, okay, let's go into there. I click that, and it opens up, and it says, do you want me to sort by gender, performance, color, brand? And for each of those, it says color. There are 16 colors. There are 15 brands. There are performances. So I am filtering down my search in a browse-like way. I'm browsing down the set of possible results in, in there. And they, This is called faceted analysis. 
it just means that for every, say, think of for a particular shoe, there's a record, a database record, and it has a bunch of fields such as specialty, gender, performance, color, brand, and each one of those has been filled out. And therefore, the system can say, tell me how many shoes with the Nike brand that are running shoes are available before I even click it and say, show me, show me these things. That would be a big help in these sites where there are many answers and many products, many applications, many categories. The, the is in a way to think database. It's not, some of these searches almost are document based. They're, they're thinking, okay, we're gonna, we have a single question and answer, that's a document, we're gonna give it to you, and here's a list of all the documents, good luck. Finally, even after you've made the sale, there are opportunities to deepen the relationship with your customer, even when, and maybe especially if they have a problem with your product. Alan Gerstein has a lot of experience in this area, and he talked about turning customer problems into opportunities. Something I observed before um, I went into uh, interactive content, I worked at what was Pharmacia Biotech for almost 20 years, most of it in the tech support department. At one point, I was the manager of the Molecular Biology Technical Support Group. <clears throat> and the responsibilities revolved around talking to, <clears throat> excuse me, hundreds of scientists every week. And um, after doing that for a few years, you notice a couple of things. Um, one, the issues usually have pretty common roots and aren't as complicated as the customer thinks. And number two, there are a lot of good things that can happen if you treat an unhappy customer properly. Um, a lot of good things that could happen um, alone and also with the help of uh, the sales rep. Nice. So um, can you give me an example of... Uh, of an outcome or, you know, not necessarily a specific one, but what kinds of good things happen when you treat those customers right? So let's see, uh, imagine a customer calling up with a problem um, with their reagent kit. Um, some people will call in with the idea that they're going to get help. Some people call in with uh, the belief that nobody cares, that the company took their money and that's it. Um, but if you work with them and by your actions show them that you're as concerned about their issue as they are and through your actions you show that you're going to stick with them um, to make the situation right even if it means spending the company's money now you're a friend you're no longer the enemy and if you can bring the sales rep um, into the conversation then you can also make the sales rep um, look like a hero also we used to do a lot of that, teaming up with the, the sales team and tech support to make the rep look like a hero. I'm imagining these people call in and um, it's a surprise that they're being treated well by you because maybe they expect, as you say, that the company doesn't care. They're already frustrated. So their mindset is such that they're, they're not necessarily expecting a good outcome. They would like help. They might not expect to get it, um, and I'm 
I'm supposing that these are troubleshooting calls that you're going to help them fix a problem, but I may not be accurate in that. Okay. Um, yeah, uh, much of the time it was troubleshooting. Sometimes it turns into more of a sales-related call. Um, it's not so much that they're having a problem with the product. Maybe they – I'm trying to think of a specific example. Um, sometimes it can be um, sort of the borderline between – customer service and technical support. Um, they might have done something wrong with the product, acknowledge it, and they're actually asking for help. Um, what can you do to help them out? Uh, whether there was a mistake they made, um, but they're in a jam. Many a time I would be speaking with people who acknowledge their own mistake, but um, they were just looking for help in the form sometimes of, of product. Okay. So can I get another one? Cause I, I, I blew it on the last one. Something like that. And, uh, you know, on paper, it's not the company's fault and you're, and the support person could be justified in saying, well, I'm sorry, it wasn't our mistake. Um, so we really can't do anything for you, but there's the missed opportunity. Here's where we would often, um, get the sales rep involved. Um, an opportunity the, to come in and, if possible, somehow work out some sort of a deal with the client. Um, not necessarily just a freebie, but maybe the rep might come in um, and somehow word it in a way as a good rep will that, okay, I'll help you in this case, but I understand you've got a big project looming. Do you think it might be possible um, for you to introduce me to somebody related to that project, if you see what I mean. Right. Okay. And so, um, if you say, sorry, the policy is if you make the mistake, you have to eat the problem, there's the missed opportunity. You never have an opportunity to get the rep involved uh, to see if there's some way that trying to help out the customer and looking like a hero, you can end up helping the company. That wraps up this second edition of the Best of Life Science Marketing Radio. You can find links to all the episodes featured here in the show notes. I'm off to podcast movement in Chicago next week. Really excited about that. And I really appreciate you taking time to listen to this podcast. Could you do me a small favor? Tell two other marketers to check out the podcast. And as always, if there's someone you'd like for me to interview that you want to hear from or a topic you want us to cover, send me an email at chris at words, the number two, wow.com. I will talk to you in a couple weeks. Bye-bye.